Stop me if you've heard this one before, but stock markets keep climbing just a little bit more. 44 records so far this year. Why so many? It's not totally clear. COVID still spreading, inflation still hot, but job gains in July beat estimates by a lot. Goldman says stocks will go higher from here, but City says no, there's plenty to fear. The Fed says, we got you, we won't let you slip. And those Treasury bond yields slowly rise, bip by bip. Corporate profits are rocking just like we thought they might, but their best days are behind them. That's going to bite. But it's a market of stocks and a global market at that. Opportunities are everywhere, and that's a fact. We need to know where to push, when to pull, and what to press. We need to stay smart on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. I hope you don't mind heights because we keep climbing. The Dow and the S&P 500 closed to record highs last week, the 44th this year for the benchmark index, which is up 18% so far this year. That should make index investors happy for now. A better than expected July payrolls report boosted optimism that the economy continues to recover, but the rising spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19 is threatening that recovery. It's the number one concern for investors large and small, for central banks, and for businesses that are trying to get back on their feet. Treasury yields did pick up a little bit on the news with the 10-year hitting 1.3% on Friday, but that's still low country. Corporate profits have been astonishing. We knew they would be, but rising prices have also helped U.S. companies grow their profit margins. Operating margins for the S&P 500 are expected to come in at 13%. That's just a hair below the record set in the first quarter, according to S&P Dow Jones indices. Strong consumer spending has helped those companies keep that pricing power, but there are no more stimulus checks going out, and those extra pandemic unemployment benefits end on September 6th in all those states that still offer them. You know what keeps rising? Passenger air travel. More than 2.2 million people went through airport checkpoints in the U.S. last Friday, according to the TSA. That's the highest count since February 28th of 2020, despite the rising daily cases of COVID-19. Airlines were not ready for this, as carriers are canceling hundreds of flights due to being short-staffed, which is leaving passengers stranded in crowded airports. Remember, Airlines urged thousands of their employees to take buyouts or leaves of absences last year amid the pandemic. And like a lot of employers, they just can't hire fast enough. They did take $54 billion in federal aid last year, so you'd think they'd have the money to hire, but it's not that easy. What's Warren Buffett been up to lately? Selling stock, apparently. Berkshire Hathaway reported its second quarter earnings over the weekend, and the conglomerate, which owns everything from Geico Insurance to Fruit of the Loom Underwear to multi-billion dollar stakes in companies including Apple, Coca-Cola, and American Express, sold a net $1.1 billion of equities last quarter. We don't know which stocks it sold until the end of the month, but Buffett and Berkshire have sold around $3.9 billion in stock so far in 2021. But Berkshire's been buying back its own stock, spending $6 billion on share buybacks last quarter, down from $6.6 billion in the first quarter, but still very robust. Buffett's a big believer in stock buybacks, saying they enhance the intrinsic value per share for continuing shareholders. Remember, companies buy back their own stock when they think it's underpriced or when they want to return money to shareholders outside of a dividend, which Berkshire doesn't offer, or if they have no better use for their cash. Berkshire Hathaway has around $144 billion in cash. And believe me, if Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, age 91 and 97 respectively, if they had a better use for that cash, they'd put it to work. And they are not flying into space anytime soon. Besides, they're trained people like us. I've been working on the railroad all the way. 
Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. 1,100 U.S. companies will report second quarter results in the coming week, including Disney, eBay, Airbnb, Coinbase, AMC Entertainment, Wendy's, and DoorDash, just to name a few. Disney's earnings will be of particular interest as the company grapples with reopening its global theme parks amid the spread of the Delta COVID-19 variant and continuing to grow its Disney Plus streaming platform. Disney has a slew of new movies set to debut in the second half of the year, including Encanto, Eternals, and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. How and where those films release will be important to the bottom line of the Magic Kingdom. Shares of Disney are down 2% so far this year. On Wednesday, we'll get reports on core inflation in the U.S. for July, as well as the inflation rate. Both climbed in June as consumer prices jumped 0.9% for May, so we should expect another increase for July. Higher prices have yet to really scare consumers from spending, but economists are starting to doubt their resiliency. On Friday, we'll get the Consumer Sentiment Report for August. It fell 5% in July from June levels, but it was still 12% higher than the same period last year. We'll also get a report on mortgage applications for July. The housing market has started to cool down here in the U.S. and should continue to do so as we head into the slowest months of the year for home buying. Remember what Julian Hebron said from the basis point a couple of weeks ago? But ultra-low mortgage rates continue to lure buyers and refinancers back into the market, so the housing grill is still kind of hot. Both India and the European Union will report industrial production figures from July. Manufacturing in the Eurozone, especially in Germany, has slowed in recent months amid the new spread of the coronavirus and continued supply chain disruptions. India's economy has faced similar issues, and July's figures will paint a better picture of whether that key economic indicator continues to decline in those regions. How's that trillion-dollar infrastructure bill coming along in the U.S.? Senators worked over the weekend to get it over the goal line, but no deal yet and they're supposed to be on vacation for the next two weeks. Look for a deal early this week if one is going to happen. And expect climate change and the dangers of global warming to be a hot topic this week. A new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change commissioned by the United Nations released on Monday warns that the planet will warm by 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next two decades without drastic moves to eliminate greenhouse gas pollution. That's much faster and more dire than the timeline set to reduce emissions put forth in the Paris Agreement of 2015. The crucial warming threshold of 2 degrees Celsius will be exceeded during the 21st century, the IPCC author said, without deep emission cuts in the coming decades. They say common sense is not so common. That's particularly true in investing. Our animal spirits like to take the wheel, especially when we get too scared or too greedy. But there are some basic principles that have stood the test of time that can help us steer through our fears. At the same time, there's also some straight up myths around savings and investing that need to be swatted like flies. Nick Majuli helped build a career for himself by doing just that, examining data, our investing behavior, and our history. And he's the blogger behind the terrific of dollars and data newsletter and blog. He's also the COO of Ritholtz Wealth Management here in New York. He's also our special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Nick. Good to have you here. Good to be here. I have become such a big fan of your writing back before you broke, even broke through the scene. Now you've exploded into 
the FinTwit blogger sphere, and everybody's reading you. So congratulations on that. And you started really young. One of your recent posts, you talk about your worst investing nightmare. And I think you're speaking to all of our fears as individual investors, a market that just keeps going down, you know, beyond the 25% or even the 35% we saw last year, beyond the 50% we've seen in even rockier times. You were talking about Spain in 1973, 1983. Paint the picture there of what was happening, but connect that to our basic primal fears as investors. Yeah. So at the time, I mean, I don't know too much about Spain and their economy, but I know that there was high inflation. I remember that there was high inflation in the US as well, but there was you know high unemployment. There was sluggish growth. There's a lot of stuff they just come out of some political turmoil right before that. So when you take all that together, it's like a perfect storm of not growing your economy. And so it was a, I call it going up the downstair, right? So you're going down, but there's like these little false rallies all the way down. And it's just like, going down for you know two to four years and then oh maybe you go up for a year or two and then it's back down again. And so like after it's like eight years of cumulative pain in a decade, which is really bad. And I think when you think about your investing nightmare, like even looking at you know 2000, 2009 in the US, like that was a rough period because you had the dot com blow up and then you had you know the GFC, which are both 250% declines. At the same time though, you kind of had moments of hope, you had moments of things turning around. And so you can tell yourself stories to get out of the funk, right? But what happened in in Spain, I don't see that. I don't see that story happening. So I can't imagine being an investor there. So I think for, I don't think US investors have really seen a period like that. Obviously, Great Depression is so bad in so many ways, but it, it was three years. But after that, you know, things kind of pulled out of it. But outside of that, like I haven't seen a period like that for the US that's, you know, at least in the modern era. So that's kind of the thing I worry about. That's what kind of keeps me up at night, if so to speak, you know, if there were one thing. Right. At the same time, Nick, you know, we have about 50%, maybe a little bit more of American households invested in the stock market. So many people so passively invested in the stock market through their 401ks, IRAs, or their SEPs, or or what have you. It's just kind of this big lump of money that keeps growing over time. Your comrades over at, at Ritholtz, Ben talks about it all the time. It's a very heavy market. And what individual investors who get scared don't often realize is that the S&P 500 has clocked up 8% average annual return since 1950, even after 32 drops of 10% or more. So drops happen, they're a feature of the stock market, but not like the one you're describing in Spain and even in Greece, which had a similar you know, 95% drop year after year. That just dissuades people out of the market, right? Yeah. I mean, something like what happened in Greece happened in the United States. I think we would be seeing some sort of end of civilization. Like It wouldn't even, it's not, we, the podcast wouldn't matter. Blogs wouldn't matter. None of this would be, we wouldn't be, the internet probably wouldn't exist. I don't know. Like I can't imagine a 95% decline in a US market capitalization. That's just unheard of. But I agree with you. Like that is the fear that people have some big dips, things like that, even, but a 60% decline is possible. 70% decline, you know, or a slow decline down to 40 or 50 that took 10 years, that would be rough too. Anything that's just a long time period where you don't kind of have that hope, that way out, right? The way out of the the trough, so to speak. Well, assuming we don't head into that black hole, we are market participants and our listeners are too, but you get at so many important basic investing principles that seem simple, but aren't so simple. If only people would just pay attention to them. And you talk about the importance of starting early and saving big. Talk about that magic and the magic of compounding. Yeah. So I think one of these things that people don't realize, and remember, this is like straight line, you know, returns. So you get 7% a year. Of course, no one's going to get that. But just for the for the math to make it easy. Yeah. By starting early, if you save for a 40-year time period, over half of your final portfolio value comes in the first 10 years because that those first 10 years 
even though it's only one quarter of your contributions, assuming you're saving the same amount every year, even though it's only a quarter of your contributions because of the investment growth, it ends up creating half your portfolio. So really, by the time, if you started when you were 22, by the time you're 32, you know, and you just save the same amount every year, you've already done over half the work for a year. And I mean, you still have to save for the next 30 years, but that's going to matter less than what you did in the first 10 years, right? So if you could save even bigger earlier on, you don't have to do anything. And in theory, if you can save enough in your first 10 years, you don't have to save after that, right? And so that's kind of the, the philosophy is understanding how much that matters, assuming you have some sort of forward growth. But yeah, that's, it's, it's kind of a very counterintuitive thing. So you don't realize how much of the heavy lifting of your portfolio is done by the markets just doing returns, right? And then you have a year like, was it 2017 or 2019? We like a 30% year. It's like, imagine doing that after you've been investing for 30 years and you got a 30%, not a 7%, you got a 30% year. That's why it matters. Those big years where it's like, what? That's crazy. You know, if you have a million bucks, you just added $300,000 doing nothing in a year. In your sleep. And that is the magic of compounding, right? Those early, early savings and those early investments are the ones that have the most time to compound that magic rule of 72, the fairy dust of the stock market. People think a lot of folks, oh, I'll get to saving when I'm later. I'll get to investing when I'm later. It's the opposite. You really want to get that started as soon as you can, assuming that you can. Let's talk about dollar cost averaging, one of our favorite terms here at Investopedia, something that I believe in as an investor. I can't pick the bottom. I can't pick the top. I can't pick when or even have the luxury of the time to pick when I want to put the money and I just want to keep doing it. Is this the right thing to do for investors of any age? Yeah, of course. I think being indiscriminate in your timing is always a doing just kind of just buying over time because yeah, the market's going to go up, it's going to go down. There's going to be these periods. And if you look over history, it doesn't really over the long run, it doesn't really matter all that much when you bought. Of course, if you put all your money in right at the top of 2000, right? Or right at, you know, 2007 before 08, you know, yeah, you're going to experience some pretty difficult periods there. But I'm saying if you're just buying over time, it's a very different psychologically. It's different for you because every payment, some payments are up, some payments you've lost money on, right? But in the long run, that won't matter if the market continues to grow, which I think it will at what pace that no one knows, right? That's kind of the question that we have to answer is like, what is the expected growth going forward? Is it the same as history? And that's kind of where there's legitimate debates that we can discuss. But I do think generally the market has a positive long-term return, whether it's positive right now over the next 10 years or the next 30, that's debatable. But I think the record of history has been pretty favorable so far for that. And to add on to that, you also have to diversify, right? You can't put all your eggs in one basket, even if it's the S&P 500 with that 7 or 8% return every year on average over the past 50 years. It's a global market of stocks. It's a global market of securities. There's a bear market happening somewhere. There's a bull market always happening somewhere else. How key is it for, for investors to be looking globally and also thinking outside of traditional asset classes? Yeah. I think one of the things people need to do is kind of look at their... I think this is very individualistic and we're really not there yet. It's just starting to happen with this whole direct indexing and then that's going to become custom indexing. But you need to look at your life and say, okay, what are the risks that I face? So for example, I work at a financial firm. Like if anything, I should probably have less financial assets than most people because my job is tied to the stock market. A lot of things are tied to markets, right? So for me to say like, I should only own the S&P 500, that's kind of crazy, right? So look at kind of your life and like, what type of risks are you facing financially? And then say like, what assets can I own that will kind of be like a hedge to that in some way. So it's not saying that you shouldn't own the S&P 500. Of course you should. You should have a lot of that stuff, right? At the same time, you can own other things that maybe are less correlated with your main hustle, so to speak, instead of your, your nine to five or whatever, whatever you do, your main 
business. So that's kind of what I would recommend. So if that means, oh, I need to go and get more involved in real estate, or oh, that means I need to get buy royalties or whatever. There's a bunch of different things you can do. Not every investor is going to have access to all that stuff. For example, sometimes you have to be an accredited investor. You have to have higher net worth to get into certain asset classes. And that's fine, but there are ways to find different things to kind of hedge that exposure a little bit. Three of those items that you list are in real estate. That's REITs, farmland, and investment or vacation properties. We all know what's happened in the housing market, the U.S. housing market, and really around the world in developed countries over the last year. Uh, real estate prices have gone absolutely bananas. In regular times, regular cycles seems to go up all the time. Why the concentration or why the focus on those three areas? And I like the different ways of approaching them, but why real estate as a as a, another potential way to hedge against some of the other elements in your portfolio? Yeah, because I think a lot of people just do, you know, stocks and bonds and that's great and all. But I mean real estate is an asset class that over time, if you actually look at REITs, REITs I think have a higher risk adjusted return than stocks do. Like historically, if you look at like at least since the 70s, I don't know how far back or how good the data is, but like owning real estate in some way. Now I'm not saying that's going to be true going forward. No one knows. It's always tough, especially with COVID. Like if you had a bunch of commercial real estate, I don't know if commercial real estate's gonna be the best bet because of what happened with COVID. And maybe there will be a resurgence and that they'll be fine. But I'm not as you know familiar with that sector, but I still have an allocation to it regardless, just because I'm not trying to like maximize my performance. I'm trying to have a decent performance within a diversified portfolio. That's kind of how I look at it. It's not trying to maximize every dollar I get, but to say, hey, spread your risk around a little bit. It's more about risk than return. So why do I have the other ones? Because yeah, farmland, it's a different way of getting at real estate in a way, right? It's like, you know, you own the farm and maybe it gets leased out to a farmer and they grow crops on it or they use it for something, right? Or livestock, whatever it is. And so you, if you have a diversified basket of farmland, you know, that's something you can really do. And actually, fun fact, the largest private owner of farmland in the United States is actually Bill Gates. So I guess, I guess, you know, Warren Buffett turned him on to that and he bought a bunch of farmland. I think that's all come out in the divorce proceedings and stuff. But yeah, he owns like, I don't know how many acres, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 acres. I don't know. It's like, it's a lot. He owns a lot of land in the United States, but I'm saying, why is Bill Gates doing that? Because he's like, I need to diversify away from just tech assets and and financial assets, right? So I think that's a, that makes sense. To your point, uh, real estate, you could look at another a number of other ways, like Blackstone is the largest owner of warehouses, not just in the US, almost around the world. It continues to buy warehouses because there's always going to be some use for that, whether it's for server farms, growing cannabis like they're doing in certain states, warehousing for Amazon. That has just become a huge play in real estate. So some of the richest people and some of the most successful private equity firms have their roots deeply in the real estate sector. Let's do a little myth busting here. I love one of your posts about the McRib sandwich. This is the McDonald's McRib sandwich. Uh, It's the McRib effect. The market historically goes up according to legend when McDonald's brings the McRib back. Is that causation? Is that coincidence? That's one of the more terrible things you could ever try at McDonald's, although everybody has to try it at least once. How does it relate to investing? What is the what is the the myth and the reality there, Nick? So I just did this. I was like, you know what? I want to do this for fun because like everyone was there's all these like, oh, this indicator, that indicator. I was like, you know what? So I just threw it. I I went and looked up all the historical dates from the McRib came out and I just said through a dummy, you know, if it's if the McRib's out, put a one. If it's not, I'll put a zero. And then I just compare those returns and I did it, you know, with the T test, the standard statistical test. And it just said like, oh, wow, it actually is, you know, it's significant. It's like, that's kind of crazy, you know? And so it's like, but obviously like, this is silly. Like, this is not a real thing. It just kind of happened, right? So it's a funny thing to see. And especially the chart is like a joke. And I ran some simulations. Let's pretend we randomly, you know, had the McRib released at different times with that matter. And so it's one of those things where it's just, you have to remind yourself that sometimes these things happen. Like there's like the Super Bowl indicator. There's these political indicators, all these things, which none of that really matters. It's just kind of a funny, sometimes, you know, you have all it takes is 
all it takes is one or two good years or months, and that can skew everything. And that's the problem when you do these average statistics, right? So I think that's why it's kind of funny to have like this McRib indicator as a way of teaching people about the, you know, the randomness in the stock market and why it's not always a clear cut thing. But it does make for great stories. And folks, the Stock Traders Almanac, go through it. There's, you know, thousands of these. And Nick points out a few great ones on his blog. You'll find a bunch of them on Investopedia as well. You had a really interesting path into the financial services business. Talk to folks about that. I, f- I find it so interesting that how folks started to get to where they are in their career. What was sort of your first job? What did you think you were going to do? And then how did it turn out for you? Yeah. So my first job, I was in something called litigation consulting. And I kind of specialized within that role in like doing data work. And so I was doing like really big data stuff with, you know, we're using servers, like IBM servers, like Natiza, like really big, heavy data, quantitative cases. And I basically built my data skills out. And so I became, you know, really technical and that allowed me to, you know, I was like, you know, maybe I should start writing about the stock market. It's going to be interesting. And obviously the stuff I'm doing on my blog is much easier than the stuff I was doing for my job, but it was still interesting for me. I was still using similar skill set. And basically I got discovered for the blogging. And then I started talking to some financial services firms and I was like, Hey, like, you know, you guys are an RIA, like, do you have any data you need to analyze? That's kind of like what I do. And so basically I spoke with Ritholtz and they were like, yeah, we have tons of data. We have no idea. Like, you know what, like we need to make business intelligence decisions. We need to make decisions about our business and we have no idea like what's happening. So I basically organized all the data. I analyzed it. Then I presented to them quarterly and then they make decisions based on that. Should we consider hiring more advisors? Should we do this? How do we allocate leads? There's a lot of questions that we have to do as a business that are kind of led by data. So that's kind of how I got into it. I just came in from the data route. You can come in from a lot of different ways, but for what I do, it's like, I think the future of like RIAs, it's very data focused. It's going to be very trying to figure out what's happening. There's a lot of interactions, a lot of web stuff, people on your websites are looking at things. What are they clicking on? How are they reacting? So getting all that information and you know understanding how to use it and make decisions, I think is incredibly important and will be more important in the future. Data is definitely the currency of the 21st century and beyond. And we use a lot of it too, believe it or not, at Investopedia and across Dash, because you learn so much from those reader insights, from those audience insights, but also trend spotting. You know, so important to be able to do that. Who are your investing heroes? Sort of who are the folks that you look up to or your North Stars that you followed in your career so far and, and you've who you've learned a lot from? So investing here, I guess it depends like in what realm, because if we're talking like historically investment people that I've like looked up to, obviously like probably my favorites, like William Bernstein. So I've, I've locked a lot of his work in terms of thinking, because he was the first person that just, instead of saying like, let's pick stocks, he's like, don't worry about that. Like it's all about asset allocation, how you allocate across different assets and diversification. So that's like a core tenant of mine. But in terms of like people that I like follow now, it's like, yeah, Jason Zweig, Morgan Housel, Michael Batnick. These are like my favorite bloggers out there. There's a lot of good other authors out there I follow, you know, like I've really been getting into Vicki Robin recently and she's got a lot of great stuff like crossover rule, like understanding financial independence. So if I'm starting to go more personal finance, that list is different than if I'm doing hardcore investing. Right. And so and there's just, there's a lot of great people out there doing a lot of great stuff. Nick Majuli, the, the blogger behind of Dollars and Data. So good to have you on The Express. Thanks for taking the time. Anytime. Thank you. Bill. Appreciate it. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Brandon in Miami, Florida. What's up, Mr. 305? We're sending you some socks for your night out on Calle Ocho. Brandon suggests stablecoin for this week's term, and we like that suggestion because stablecoins are au courant as the SEC and other financial regulators are laying the groundwork for more regulations around cryptocurrencies. We're going to hit that theme a little harder on the way out, but first, let's ask Investopedia, what's a stablecoin? 
Well, a stablecoin, according to my favorite website, is a new class of cryptocurrencies that attempts to offer price stability and are backed by a reserve asset. Stablecoins may be pegged to a currency like the U.S. dollar or to a commodity's price, such as gold. They achieve their price stability via collateralization or the backing or through algorithmic mechanisms of buying and selling the reference asset or its derivatives. Stablecoins have gained some traction as they attempt to offer the best of both worlds, the instant processing and security or privacy of payments of cryptocurrencies, with the volatility-free stable valuations of fiat currencies like the dollar. Remember, Bitcoin is not tied to a fiat currency. You may have heard of some of the more popular stablecoins like Tether, USD coin, or Binance. They each have over a billion dollars in market value. But because their pricing is derived from their peg to a fiat currency like the dollar, regulators like the Securities and Exchange Commission think they need more oversight. They meet a lot of the criteria the SEC uses to determine what is and what isn't a security. Well, according to the 1933 Securities Act, the definition of what a security is is pretty broad. Here's just a few of the items the SEC counts as securities, according to the Act. The term security means any note, stock, treasury stock, security future, security-based swap, bond, debenture, evidence of indebtedness, certificate of interest, or participation in any profit-sharing agreement, collateral trust certificate, pre-organization certificate or subscription, transferable share, investment contract, etc., etc., etc. That's pretty broad, and you can see why stablecoins may fall into one or more of those buckets. As for crypto tokens like Bitcoin, the SEC is coming for those too. We're going to let SEC Chair Gary Gensler take us out this week. Here's Gensler speaking at the 2021 Aspen Security Forum on the SEC's views on cryptocurrencies and national security. Right now, though, in this digital scarce speculative asset, Bitcoin and others, we just don't have enough investor protection. And frankly, at this time, it's more like the Wild West than some sort of uh, protection against fraud and manipulation in this space. This asset class is rife with fraud, scams, and abuses in certain applications. There's a great deal of hype and spin about how crypto assets work, and in many cases, investors aren't able to get rigorous, balanced, complete information. It doesn't mean there aren't good faith actors, and there are many of them, but investors really aren't getting the information to judge the risk and understand the risk. And I fear that if we don't address the issues, I worry a lot of people will be hurt. That's right. There's a new sheriff in town. And as far as Gensler and the SEC are concerned, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and the platforms that offer them for trade also fall into its purview. The rules are still being written, but Gensler, who has studied and written about digital currencies extensively, says investors need more protection. Let's protect ourselves at all times this week. The air gets thinner, the higher we climb. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Oh,